You are listening to the Wi-Fi Ninjas podcast, where we talk about wireless technology. Here are your hosts, Matt Daring and Matt Starling. Hello, and welcome to the latest Wi-Fi Ninja podcast. I'm your host, Matt Starling, joined today with Matt Daring, and we have a very special guest on the show today, Mr. Ashley Georgeson. Hi, Ash. Hi, Ash. Good morning, guys. How are we? Very good. How are you? I am amazing. Thank you. Morning. It's, morning. <laughs> um, yeah, it's nice today. It's actually um, getting sunny in the mornings back in the UK now, so it uh, feels like spring is spring is finally coming along. It feels like the perfect day to talk about Wi-Fi. Yeah, it, it does. Feel like about the stadium. <laughs> Indeed. So I think Mac, Mac has just let the cat out of the bag about what our main topic today is going to be, stadium Wi-Fi. But before we get into that, Ash, do you just want to introduce yourself and let everyone know like who you are and a bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, so first of all, thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast, guys. Um, really excited about it. Um, I'm a first-time caller, a long-time listener, um, Ashley Georgeson. Um, I'm a network professional of around 15 years' experience, although I don't like to think about it that much. Uh, it's quite a long time. Um, like Matt, I also took a network engineering degree. That was also many, many years ago now. And over the years, I've worked across most of the technologies in networking from campus, LAN, data center, Wi-Fi, obviously, wide area networking, security, telephony. I've designed and deployed solutions across all of those over the years. Um, and today, I'm lucky enough to help my clients with designing network and helping them with their network strategy, which is a job I really love to do. Um, so I guess the things we talk about today will just be the details of my experience, my thoughts. Um, and yeah, that's that's me. Cool. Thanks, Ash. I think I have to say that we're the lucky ones because this is actually the second time of us recording this because the first time the quality wasn't good. So we just want to say thanks for your time again to come and talk about Stadium Wi-Fi again because it's actually <laughs> taken twice as long to to do this podcast for but for everyone. But it was such a good podcast. We're really excited to to do it again. Um, so usually at this point, myself or Mac would talk around a recent challenge that we had based on the main topic. But as this is kind of your specialty area, is there a recent challenge that you maybe want to talk about around Stadium Wi-Fi? Uh, I, th I think we will talk about some of the challenges around specific design when we get into the guts of the podcast. But I just wanted to give you... Um, actually, a, a couple of challenges I've had lately, which are completely unrelated. Uh, so I apologize that it's <laughs> somewhat out of step of your normal podcast structure. Um, but I thought it'd be sort of useful for me to um, let your sort of podcast listeners understand um, myself a little bit more. I've been mainly struggling the last couple of weeks with time, um, time management, with trying to do all of the fun things that I really want to do whether that's learning or discovering and researching new technologies, um, listening to awesome podcasts and, and webinars. Um, it's something I struggle with. And I imagine most other people have similar difficulties when there's so much amazing content out there on, on the internet. So that's, that's my primary sort of lifestyle struggle that I wrestle with. 
And from a technical perspective, I have, have actually had a minor issue on my home network, which was um, picked up by my girlfriend. Actually. Um, we had all of our Alexa devices just fell off the network one day. And I'm running um, a well-known cloud-based wireless network at home. And small amount of troubleshooting identified that I'm actually running beta software. So a quick um, rollback of the beta software and all of my devices started actually transmitting and receiving again. So word of warning, watch out for beta software. <laughs> nice. Was the beta software installed automatically on your devices without you knowing about it? Is that a feature of your well-known cloud provider? <laughs> exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed recently as well that you're uh, building a bit more presence online with your Twitter and stuff, aren't you? I, I've taken a leaf out of your book, Mr. Starling, and <laughs> have uh, tried to whip it into shape. So um, if anybody would like to get in touch with me on the virtual airwaves, then they can find me at Ashley Georgeson on the Twitters and Ashley.Georgeson on the LinkedIn's. Perfect. Okay, so where would you like to start today talking around stadium Wi-Fi? Is there a specific area you want to start with first? I think we were probably best place to start looking at the physical wireless design. Um, so I think Mac probably had some questions for me that he would like to start drilling down to. But perhaps we started the physical side of things, which is foundational. <laughs> Yeah, as always. So are we ready to deep dive into the main topic, which is stadium Wi-Fi challenges and design? Let's go for it. Cool. <laughs> Ash, a lot of enthusiasm from you. <laughs> it's a great topic, yeah. <laughs> it is indeed. All righty. So let's start with, with physical design. And it would only be fair to start with physical mounting of a piece and antennas. Where normally do we mount them? We have quite a lot of possibilities in a stadium Wi-Fi. So we could possibly mount the access points uh, above the heads, underneath the chairs, in the rails, and anywhere else where we can run a cable. So the question to you is, what is your favorite spot? What is your challenge uh, that you normally have while thinking about where to mount the access points, uh, choice of the access points and antennas and everything around the physical placement? So let's just start there. Yeah, crit critical set of considerations, really, chaps. Um, what I would normally do is we would kick off with an initial walkthrough of the arena, walking around, having a look at potential coverage requirements and mounting positions to really just get an initial feel of, of what the stadium actually looks like, looks and feels like. And this would be before we do any sort of predict predictive survey where yeah, an understanding of a rough order of magnitude of equipment and really to start scoping up um, an on-site physical survey. So the, the sort of things we'd be looking at from a mounting perspective would be certainly some of those positions that you talked about there. The number one preferable position would be the roof overhang, because what we're really talking about in terms of challenges is providing decent Wi-Fi within the bowl area. 
um, the, the concourse, the back office, the restaurants, etc. That's less challenging. So we'll primarily focus with the challenging bowl area. So if we start with the roof, uh, the key consideration would be distance. Um, so distance from the roof overhang down to the seating deck. What we're really aiming for is something around 20, 25 meters. Um, why we would prefer the roof would be direct line of sight. So imagine we choose some roof locations. Perhaps we've already got some infrastructure up there. We've got some lighting rigs. Uh, we might have some walkways for maintenance access, etc. So normally there's some good physical infrastructure for us to actually provide mounting attachments for our mountain rigs and we would always go for a highly directional so a highly focused with a small beam width uh, directional antenna and this would allow us to shoot down into um, into the seating areas so um, it would give us a very nice spread if we went for our staggered honeycomb style design but this isn't always possible right we might have uncovered areas of seating deck, which uh, we can't uh, use any any roof for, or the distance may be far too far. So the spread of cell size would, would be too big, um, in which case we would need to consider some alternate positions. So I'll, I'll talk you through some of those others. Um, but the key sort of thing is we, we need to have lots of options and flexibility in our kit bag to try and make this work right. Um, and another another key consideration is that not all stadiums can actually support a decent Wi-Fi installation. So if, if we're lacking appropriate mounting positions or the distance is too far from the fans, we're going to have a bad time. So other positions we could consider, uh, the ribbon. So if, if you imagine your favorite football stadium, you would have, uh, depending on the size, multiple tiers. And then say if you had the, the second tier up, at the very front of that tier, you would have an advertising ring that runs around. Uh, we call that the ribbon. And a position you could use there would be on the overhang of that ribbon, typically it's concrete. Um, and you may already have some speakers or some TV screens pointing back into that lower deck. Uh, we can also use that um, to maybe put a, a patch antenna uh, to point back into the that lower seating deck. So again, we're shooting from above. We've got direct line of sight. Uh, key consideration there is we need to ensure that there's no interruption of the pitch view for the fans. Um, but typically, um, if, if it's high enough, we're going to be okay there. Other positions that uh, are good uses would be um, the vomitories. So this is one of my favorite words. In stadium Wi-Fi, it comes from um, an old Roman term for the amphitheater exits. Um, I think they were called vomitoriums, um, which is it's also my favorite. <laughs> uh, I thought it would be for you, Mac. Uh, <laughs> again, so you can uh, for this you can shoot either from behind or in front um, of, of, the, of the fans. Uh, what we try and avoid is shooting from behind too much. So if you're considering mounting on the back wall and shooting from the backs of fans, that's going to degrade the, the signal as humans are 80% water, and water highly attenuates um, 
wireless signals. So that's not really going to penetrate down to the front few rows. So we try and avoid that if at all possible. But like I say, it's all about trying to gain the percentages. Other scenarios that could work um, with done pitch side. So where you again have the advertising hoardings at the side, uh, we can mount um, in, for example, IP rated enclosures with some patches that would shoot into the front few rows. So that could be a solution where, say, if we've gone for a primary, uh, a primarily roof-mounted uh, coverage design, um, it may be that the front few rows, by dint of the fact they uh, typically um, descend, so they get lower by the time they get to the pitch. Perhaps that's too far for the roof, which might mean that their signal uh, and performance um, is lacking. So we can provide some um, pitch-based. Coverage from using those advertising hoardings. Uh, and then you also mentioned some other uh, interesting uh, designs, which um, I've not actually used, but we have tested. Uh, you could shoot from under the seats. I've heard some stories of where this has worked out in the States. This would probably have some considerations around physical um, access because you know, you, you're going to have fans that are right on top of those. So they need to be super secure and you know, there's public safety issues that need to be considered there. And, and at least the fans get a heated seat, right? Oh yeah, that's that's a primary, primary purpose of putting there. You can maybe put one access point underneath each seat so that every every user's got their own AP. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in this case also fans would be cooked, not only the seats. <laughs> <laughs> With the under-seat ones as well, if if the stadium has like flippy seats, that wouldn't be an option, I'd, I'd presume, right? No, that would... That it'd have to, yeah, it'd have to be fixed a fixed seat that's constantly down. Yeah, that's it's an option, but not one that I've actually tested or, or really needed to use out of the old kit bag. Then other things I've heard of is under the seating depth. So this is actually underneath the, the concrete itself. Um, so that really depends on the thickness of the concrete and you've got to consider, you know, the, the client devices transmit power as well. Um, I mean, I've tested the attenuation through concrete. It's not good. Um, I probably wouldn't rely on this. This is my primary means. And then I've also seen handrail um, installations. So this would be rather than a uh, from above or behind. This is actually from a more side to side. Um, I don't really like that because you've got less control over the, the cell uh, coverage and design. Uh, but again, if, if you use it for corner cases, then it might get you out of the sticky situation, but probably not your initial go-to design. Then really, that's they're, they're the main sort of bowl installation positions that the rest of the stadium, so places like the concourse um, or the boxes, where these guys have the danger of bleeding into the bowl, we need to make intelligent use of the stadium's architecture uh, to ensure that we can minimize that. So for instance, um, most stadiums will have some corporate boxes that uh, basically open into the bowl. So rather than having like a omnidirectional AP within each box, because that would definitely bleed into the bowl, what we might do is leverage the um, the corridors outside of the boxes and identify 
for instance, pillars so that we can um, install access points that don't actually, well, that can still provide coverage within those boxes, but minimize the bleeds that goes in into the bowl. And, and the same with the concourse, uh, because obviously they would open up into those vomitories. We want to, again, minimize that bowl bleed. So we could use things like patches that just run the length of the concourse, or we could put on these in positions that are um, highly covered and protected through the internal concrete architecture of, of the concourses to prevent that. Then the, the rest of the stadium, where there is no real concern of that bowl bleed, would be places like uh, internal restaurants, or there could be back offices, or even small hotels. This would be more of a traditional design, um, where we don't really need to uh, worry too much about what's happening inside the bowl. So you can probably go ahead and design and survey for those guys as as normal. So I think that's a good summary. Definitely. And ideally, if you could, what would you say is the maximum height you would like to mount an antenna away from the client devices? Yeah, it really, it really depends. If we're going for some of the highly directional um, small beam width antennas then you know 25 meters is a good rule of thumb and if we're running uh, like patches or omnis then we could be a lot closer right um omnis far closer um uh, patches um you know it really depends on the position we're running them so if, if we're using that overhang um, in the ribbon for instance you're probably only going to be um like three meters or so away and, and probably the same same with the omnidirectionals, I'd say. Um, but, but really, the, the go-to would be the highly directional um, from the roof, which is constrained by uh, the actual distance from the roof to the seating deck. Uh, but of course, you can, you can use things like um, custom mountain uh, designs where you can drop down using some unistrap or uh, you know, create your own um, fixings, as long as it doesn't interfere with the stadium operations uh, but next time you go into a stadium have a look at, up at the roof and you'll see all the stuff that's been strapped up there and built over the years that you'll be surprised how much infrastructure is actually up there i mean that's the first thing i do anytime i go to a stadium or a venue i'm looking up for where the antenna or the access point is to be fair <laughs> i bet that's the same thing you do in any building <laughs> yeah yeah like zombies looking down onto our smartphones or app looking for the access points everywhere we go. <laughs> okay, Ash, and when you design uh, the antennas coverage, what is your aim in terms of number of users that you would like to serve with one antenna, with one radio chain? Yeah, and um, typically we'd be aiming for something like um, 200 <coughs> per AP. So if you imagine um, each seating block would probably have about, it, it depends on, on the stadium, of course, but on average, you'll probably see something like 20 rows of seats um, times by 20 seats across. So that's you know, a typical 400 seat block. And then we, we would imagine that you know 50% of those guys could be online at any time. So we'd probably be aiming for something in the region of two, up to 200 Per access point, so split across the radios. Okay, and a split would be uh, 2.4 and 5, or dual 5 gigahertz. Do you know what's the trend that 
normally is being used on the stadiums, do we still care for 2.4? Yeah, in, in, in the main, 2.4 is the real challenge. Um, 5 gig is, uh, in the main, it works without too much effort in tuning or design. So 2.4 is where we need to spend most of our times and efforts in um, optimizing and improving the coverage. Uh, the trend has definitely reflected what we see in the enterprise. In fact, it, it's probably more advanced than the enterprise, I would, I would say. Um, when we were first looking at this, it was very much um, 640 in favor of 2.4. This was quite a few years ago now. And whereas up to now, it's, it's very much 80 to 25 gig to 2.4 gig. So there's still 2.4 out there, still quite a lot of it. So in terms of that radio design, um, initially it would have been maybe one-to-one of um, 2.4 to 5 gig radios, whereas now we can use a more flexible antenna design approach, um, so flexible radio design approach. We can leverage more of the, the dual 5 gig capabilities that are now in the market, but we, we can't um, fully design to the detriment of 2.4 gig. There's, there's still a lot out there, and we don't want to be in the market of preventing people and I still see you know, some quite old devices out there. So I've, I've seen like uh, Nintendo Switches, uh, Nintendo DSs, Blackberries. There's you know some old kit out there that still wants to connect and talk to our network. So yeah, we, we want Nintendo to Switch is not old. I'm sorry. I have Nintendo Switch. It's lovely. It connects to five gigs like crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More, I meant the Nintendo DS. Um, I was looking at my Switch <laughs> as I. I mentioned it but yeah for sure we want to be egalitarian and allow everybody onto our network um and that that means the older devices as well okay so when we are discussing the 2.4 versus 5 and assuming that we want to have this compatibility uh, how would we steer clients to 5 gigs from 2.4 for 5 gigs capable devices while still allowing access to 2.4. Like uh, features like band select or band steering, whatever it's called, they are adding quite a lot of struggle to the airtime utilization on a massive scale, which a stadium is. So I'm wondering what would be the approach to, to steer clients towards 5 gigs? Yeah, we don't. We don't. If the client wants to connect or, or is able to connect, using whatever methods they can, uh, then we let that happen. We, we don't want to ignore their association requests, their probe requests. Like you say, that has an impact to the air utilize, airtime utilization. If, if a client can connect, we want them to straight away. We don't want them clogging up the airtime. Air so we would actually disable any of those um, steering features or client load balance features purely for that. And we would also go ahead and only use a single SSID in, in the bowl also to help with reducing that management and control overhead. But for sure, uh, we, yeah, we want to ensure that if a client can get on and allow that to happen, uh, we don't want to put any blockers in the way because it's very highly, um, it's ultra high density environment with um, lots of clients. Uh, communicating so we want to minimize that if at all possible so ash what else would you consider for the kind of like high density optimizations for the stadium yeah uh optimizations really start with the rf design so a lot of time the majority of the time would be spent during the planning and design phases 
So ensuring we go through appropriate survey work, make sure that the underlying RF architecture is solid. Then we need to, like I said, we need to leverage the arena architecture to help that. From a wireless LAN configuration perspective, there are certain optimizations we would look to leverage. And that would be things like in controlling of the cell size. So um, ensuring that the coverage is really only limited to those areas where we want it to be and that clients are served within that area and nowhere else um, because we don't want clients that are too far away or in different cells to have any chance of associating and communicating at lower speeds that brings down the overall performance of that cell for all of the other users that are the primary user base because that has um, a detrimental total system throughput impact to all of those clients. So we want to avoid that. So things we would use to try and optimize that performance for those guys would be things like receiver sensitivity. So depending on the vendor, there's different um, terminology for how that's configured. But in effect, we are just setting a threshold of the um, signal strength at which traffic or energy from these clients we would actually allow or um, turn into understandable data. Um, so we would tune that to a certain level whereby clients that are physically outside of where we want our cell coverage to be, um, they'll effectively be ignored. Um, so that would encourage these guys to associate to the cell they're within. Um, then we would do some of the normal things like adjusting and tuning the, the minimum data rates. Um, we would configure the thresholds for um, the adaptive radio management or uh, the radio resource management and transmit power levels and things like filtering unnecessary traffic. So there'll be a lot of um, IPv6 traffic or um, BUM traffic, so broadcast um, unknown unicast, multicast traffic that uh, we may not necessarily need unless we're running some sort of um, overlay service that requires multicast, for instance. Um, so we can go ahead and unfilter traffic both on the LAN and on the wireless side to, to ensure that the, anything that's transmitted on, on the air is actually useful. So again, we're, we're trying to optimize at different levels of the design to gain those percentages. We're trying to optimize the physical RF. We're uh, trying to optimize the, the cell coverage, um, the data rates, and the actual traffic that's, that's on the air. Then uh, obviously we would also perhaps look at things like um, ensuring we're only running smallest channel size um, as possible so that we can minimize our channel reuse. Uh, we can even consider whether DFS is going to be an impact um, in, in our experience because events are so short. Um, DFS events may or may not happen during during like a game of football. It's only, people are only going to be in the state maybe couple hours tops so we'll probably make a design choice to actually go ahead and use all five gig channels that could be impacted by dfs uh, purely because the impact is outweighed by the performance gain by having the maximum number of channels available to us um, but all of these things we would heavily investigate during the design and, and planning phase so that we can make deep data-driven decisions um, to determine what is the the most optimal design and configuration for us. 
Yeah, that makes makes really good sense. Thanks for that. Um, would you ever take an approach on rate limiting any clients at a stadium? No, no, I would not. Um, we <laughs> spend a lot of time reviewing um, other deployments of stadium Wi-Fi, and where I've seen that enabled, uh, that's normally in response to an acknowledgement that the Wi-Fi design is poor. So, for instance, one of the first stadiums I went to look at, they had only actually deployed wireless to one stand. Um, so it's a partial deployment. So already you're fighting from the back foot. You'll have people trying to associate from the other three stands, right? Um, and just imagine the airtime in that scenario. And what the operator tried to do to um, help the performance of that one stand is it started to and the overall impact of that is clients are on the airtime for longer when they're actually transmitting and receiving, uh, which is anathema to good wireless design. We want clients to get on the network, transmit and get off possible, um, so that other people have a chance to say, say what they've got to say, right? Because we're in that scenario where, you know, today it's very much a shared medium. Hopefully that's going to change with um, upcoming protocols, et cetera. But very much today, um, any sort of rate limiting on, on the wireless side is you're going to have a bad time. So I would definitely recommend not doing that today. Ash, that was the uh, the perfect answer, to be fair. That's exactly what I was kind of hoping you'd say. <laughs> yeah, just get yourself a nice big backhole pipe, you know. Um, bandwidth is very cheap these days. And you can maybe do some clever stuff on firewall infrastructure side. But yeah, let's, let's get them off the wireless quickly. Yeah, Ash, myself listened to our last episode of Eddie where we discussed this topic in more detail. So he knows the answers now. <laughs> uh, okay. So um, how would you, you, I suppose you've already spoken about kind of designing the cell sizes and channel reuse and um, maybe one thing you just want to touch on is is roaming of a, of a client and, and the approach for that and if it's only a bit of a concern or... How is it you kind of like target roaming for inside the stadium? Yes, that's a good question. Is I guess is it really a concern? Is a question I would ask myself. Let's think about the use case. It's quite different to more traditional enterprise women where you know I, I take my laptop, I'm on my Skype call or whatever, and I'm, I'm moving between meeting rooms back to my desk in in the stadium other considerations so for one on on the approach to the stadium perhaps users are on the on the smartphones uh, we might have some coverage um, in that approach area um, perhaps even in in the parking for instance but within within the stadium we'll definitely have zones where we don't have coverage at all so I'm thinking um, the stairwells um, where we've got thousands of people tracing up and down we really don't want people on the Wi-Fi there for, for safety reasons. And then when people are actually in, in their seats, they're not moving, they're static, right? So we just want people to be associated to that cell coverage that, that we designed in the RF stage, right? Uh, what, what is really going to be users' roaming behavior? They'll be going from, from the concourse into the stand, uh, which is easy enough to manage from a roaming perspective because we will have contiguous coverage there but they won't be on their phones 
it, the main sort of roaming behavior we would see is just going to be between the the stand area and the concourse. But like I say, that there will be static users. So we're not really designing for roaming, say. We're just designing for those static um, coverage cells and ensuring that uh, we do consider cell overlap to a certain degree. It's not a primary concern. Um, really, we're just ensuring that there are no coverage holes um, with, within uh, within the seating deck and within the concourse so that whilst users are there, they've always got coverage. They're always being served by their nearest AP. So although I, I would say that we're not really designing for roaming in mind, we are designing for coverage and capacity, um, but by dint of that, we will be able to manage roaming between those desire lines that our fans will have. Okay, and I just wonder, uh, if the roaming is not a concern and is definitely not in the stadium, would we try to use some features, roaming-related features like 802.11R, fast transition, 802.11V and K that helps with roaming decisions? So what is my thinking behind it is when people, they do move between two access points, Without those features, they will have to either fully scan entire band before making the decisions about which access point to jump to next, and they will have to fully re-authenticate, which takes time, right? And that might be also correlated to my next question. <laughs> uh, what is the authentication method? I know that we are jumping the gun a little bit here, but I feel it's related to roaming quite strongly. So if you are not designing for roaming, we are most likely not using 802.11RV and K, which in case of some more sophisticated authentication method would make it just more time consuming, which we want to avoid. So how do we authenticate users if we are not using those roaming features? Yeah, great question. Um, I would say those KBR style features, for sure we, we are always looking to see if we can utilize those, but I think it goes back to an earlier point I made that we've got quite a lot of legacy devices still on the network. And if we go ahead and switch some of these features on, we risk uh, marooning these devices. They, they won't be able to associate to the network um, in, in quite a lot of the cases. So I, I think that sort of prevents us from really uh, enabling some of these optimizations today. For sure, uh, I'm seeing that number of um, use cases reduce over time. So I, I think um, it, in that sense, we're behind the curve in enterprise where, you know, a client might have hands full of devices that are standard and it's very easy to design the network purely for those device types. We maybe don't have the same luxury here because we've got, you know, a, a wide range of different users and, and device types over many generations. But I, I think that will definitely change with time. Um, from an authentication perspective, there are a few different options. But what we found worked for us was um, a very simple um, onboarding splash page uh, with a limited amount of information from, from the user. With which could be quite high performance, um, but fairly insecure. So if, if you're running a captive portal style um, authentication page um, or onboarding page, that would typically be run 
on an open SSID. Um, so it wouldn't be encrypted on, on the air. You would need to rely on uh, whatever um, application or, or traffic the user is generating to be inherently encrypted itself, so running HTTPS or, or whatever. Uh, there, there are other methods that I've, I've seen with, with good success. So EAP methods, primarily EAP SIM, um, I think that works really well for, um, for smartphone devices um, purely because they will all, all have um, a SIM card. Um, so I, I think that's probably um, the future direction. And there's quite a few use cases I've seen around the UK where that works well. Yeah, my, my preference today would be Probably for a captive portal style approach, um, just through ease ease of um, ease of access from a user perspective, but definitely with eyes on heap methods um, for for future security. Okay, how about open open? Because like I feel it's it's really the quickest. It Ipsim, it it makes a lot of sense, right? It's like you you go to to the tube, you have some some SSIDs provided by like O2 or whatever. Where if you're on O2, you will connect to automatically, and it's transparent to the user, which is amazing. But if you don't have a SIM enabled device, uh, don't you feel like a splash page might be a little bit time consuming, and it might not work sometimes? Is open open a real it, it thing? So when uh, when we basically we had the same challenges um, ourselves, we've looked at the market of the various authentication platforms, and invariably they were either really expensive or really complicated. Um, and we we found that they didn't really have a stadium Wi-Fi design at their heart. Right. So we we took the the. Uh, decision to go ahead and design our own captive portal uh, and that gave us quite a few advantages so that primary concern that you just raised user perspective we would design that out we would make it super straightforward all they had to do was you know put in their email address effectively and and hit go and you know, that's actually quite straightforward for even the English football fan that might have had a couple of pints before the game, right? <laughs> um, but they can actually manage this. Uh, and we, we saw really good success. And that the benefit of developing your own means that you're not beholden to any vendor. So say you have a bug or a new feature and you, you're not fighting with other clients or customers of that vendor, their own bugs or features. You can go ahead and prioritize it internally with your own development team. So, yeah, from our experience, developing our own solution from the ground up gave us a lot of flexibility and we could engage with the user-based communi community to understand how we could improve the, the product. So, yeah, but for us, that worked quite well. Uh, th there are plenty of other ways you could connect to the network, um, but at the point of open-open, we probably need to consider away from the technical and engineering side of stadium Wi-Fi and perhaps some of the commercial aspects. And a lot of cases, um, it's quite an expensive solution and clubs would leverage um, some of their existing commercial relationships to try and fund it. And that could be through advertisement and, and marketing. And, and that's where 
things like a captive portal would really be leveraged to use that as a primary point of a um, tying together their marketing and advertisement relationships and and b um, collecting some um, basic information about their clients. So they've got that sort of um, information gathering um, as as a cost of providing you with awesome um, internet access and wireless wireless access. So there's sort of balance of um, balance and trade between the fan and and the, the club. Yeah, and also with open open, the roaming will be much quicker than it would have been with let's say EPSIM with no roaming optimizations turned on. I get it. So open open would be probably uh, the quickest without the splash page, but splash page gives the investor, the owner of a stadium, possibility to see who is connecting, to create some profiles of the users and to see how they can improve the service for them in the future while making money by doing so. Correct? Yeah, pretty much in a nutshell. And, and remember, um, you would typically on board once, okay, register once, and for each subsequent visit, you would just have a welcome back sort of page. You wouldn't, you know, as, as you roam between different APs, you wouldn't have to re-register or re-reconnect, per se. You would still have an active authentication session. So the, the impact from the user experience perspective would actually be quite minimal. Um, and what we would try and avoid is bumps in the road. Um, and what I mean by that is um, you might see some of the providers out there which, you know, have their own captive portal across various different uh, public businesses or retails across the UK. You might find it actually to register. You've got to click through about 10 pages, enter you know, 100 different pieces of information. Each of those is a blocker to users getting onto the wireless. So they might just turn around and say, yeah, I'm not giving that information or that's too much. Um, I'm just going to click cancel and use 4G. Trying to avoid that. We want the, the most people on the wireless as possible. Um, actually, if, if we get them on net, then we're going to minimize some of the other impacts to wireless performance um, through clients issuing probe requests, um, which can actually have quite a detrimental impact when there's such a large scale of... Um, client devices within the environment. So um, if we're going to take the, the approach of we want to minimize those bumps in the road. It needs to be a nice user experience. And that's certainly possible just through intelligent design. Perfect. It makes makes quite a lot of sense. So with the captive portal and the information that you capture uh, about the users, do you normally use some kind of location tracking or some kind of presence tracking where you create all this nice and colorful chart about the users that are coming back, how much time they spend and where do they go to restaurants or do they spend much time just watching the game and not moving anywhere? Do you normally use that tool intelligence? Yeah, it's it's completely possible. Um, so just even the basic presence information, um, we can see uh, which access point a user has been registered to, which access point they've connected to so you can start to understand some of that base location information so what is their actual flow through the facility um, if you want to to get that more um, intelligent analysis and analytics 
around that you'd really need some um almost like a um, so various vendors out there have products that can take in all of the, the low-level telemetry from the wireless network to, in, in effect, perform data munging. Um, and what I mean by that is um, some deep low-level uh, statistical analysis of all of the feeds coming in and the ability to overlay that on onto maps so you can do basic heat mapping but also expose the data to other um, other engines that can then um, allow the for instance you may have a CRM system so you can open up that raw data to CRM so the um, the arena operator can then start to make um, insights and actionable insights from from that data so uh, you could say for instance say this um, this MAC address has moved past this AP. We would then like to start pushing some marketing information um, to that email address. Um, so there's there's definitely a, a whole raft of tools and products on the market now which can really get into the guts and, and start being quite intelligent um, about how we how we handle and manage um, users based on on location. So it's it's very difficult to be super accurate with Wi-Fi and and even harder to be super accurate with within stadium. But from just a general uh, general trend perspective, we can we can actually get some quite useful information. But it it really does boil down to um, some of the products that we bolt onto the side of the Wi-Fi. Um, I've seen some vendors have tried to. to bake in some of this location analytics within the Wi-Fi solution. And it's it's okay, but it's it's not it's not perfect. Um, I think to really gain the benefit of of this new source of data, uh, you really need some of these platforms which are dedicated and have the the power to actually crunch all of these numbers. But then you need the the, the business use cases to really start to develop those and to integrate them into some of your existing business systems you really get the benefit of your investment. Definitely. Okay. Uh, so since we are discussing this security stuff and the you know, splash pages and the benefits of using the splash pages for the marketing purposes and, and this kind of stuff, uh, shall we just discuss quickly some uh, content filtering? Maybe what is the approach or do you have any other questions which we would like to ask Matt or Ash to talk about? Yeah. Um, for sure, we typically design stadium Wi-Fi for one purpose, which is um, to provide users awesome Wi-Fi to get them internet access right, so they can start uploading um, their amazing pictures of the game and their commentary on Twitter. Um, and in order to do that, we, we need to protect these users. So content filtering would definitely be something we'd look to put into place. And for, for these sort of things, there's various um, cloud-based content filtering platforms that we would look to leverage. Um, but I would also probably ensure that we've got at least some perimeter protection on those um, internet uh, backhaul circuits as well. So some high-powered firewalls that can cope with the amount of user connections that we'd expect coming through and can handle the throughput. Uh, we could also consider some next-gen firewall capability. But for sure, we need to protect the users. So that means blocking blocking certain URLs, certain sites, certain categories. 
but that could also be leverage for commercial purposes by um, perhaps blocking the other um, gambling partners that, that aren't partners with with the, the club, for instance, or you know their their preferred alcoholic beverage of choice. More than just user protection, there's maybe some commercial considerations within content filtering and security as well. I would say, chaps. Cool. So thanks for that, Ash. Um, I think that's covered quite a lot of kind of like the under, underlying infrastructure, and we talked touched on security and the wireless configuration and physical mounting of the access points and antennas. Uh, shall we move on to maybe some sort of apps that you would? usually see, be seen to be used by either the clients and then what kind of apps maybe that be used by the owners of the stadiums? Sure. I, I guess each each operator might have slightly different goals and what they're trying to provide their um, users from an experience perspective. And I think that's very much the, the point of the um, beyond the, the scenario where we just want to provide internet access. Um, it is about experience now, and and that's something that can be said across not just sports and entertainment, but I think things like retail in general. We really need to, as an operator, we need to work quite hard to um, bring in new customers and actually maintain them. And, and that is beyond just the spectacle of what our core offering is. I think it's through experience as well, and apps can 100% help that. So sorts of apps that I've seen successfully deployed would be um, perhaps a, a sporting app where we can um, engage with the live content through things like um, instant replays or statistics on the game, being able to participate in um, polls or, or votes or competitions. Um, yeah, so really trying to in, engage with, with the, the customers and and improve their experience, um, I think that's quite successful. Other things like um, social media, again, trying to generate and drive that engagement of the clients beyond just um, being being at the game. First thing I see this um, successfully deployed over in the US. Um, typically, if a game of football over there, uh, users would be in the ground, you know, maybe two hours before kickoff and and a fair similar chunk of time after. And the goal is to really keep the guys in, in the stadium so that they consume more of the content and the um, the product that the operator has, has to offer. And it's somewhat different over in the UK. We might have users that would turn up five or 10 or 15 minutes and would only be there for the match and then would leave straight afterwards. So... I think, I, I think I definitely fit into that category when I go to watch games. I uh, I get there just before kickoff and then I'm out literally just straight after the end of the match. But I, I've, I've seen some stuff online with the Americans. They definitely make much more of a day of it than what, what we do. They, they really do. And perhaps that's <laughs> part of the culture or perhaps Americans have further to go to get to their nearest, their nearest team. They're, they're all franchised, of course. So perhaps... Football is not the primary use case for this sort of capability. Uh, maybe I could see it working with something like cricket, where, or maybe like test cricket, where you've got users that are there all day. Um, there's more opportunity to drive that engagement or you know, long, longer spectacle sports, maybe ice hockey, um, 
yeah, I think there's definite scope there, but football in the UK and, and perhaps Europe in general is maybe not the the primary use case, but I can definitely see it it filtering down from from the states and and from from other sports. Um, but that's that's purely from a a user experience uh, perspective. There's certainly other apps that that I've seen that, that could also have a place. So like back office apps where perhaps we have the ticketing staff that be able to roam um, around the, the approach areas to the stadium and be able to handle ticket transactions over the Wi-Fi um, and rather than just having those static locations so that we can enhance the, the spread and, and capability of, of the team. We could maybe also use um, some building management apps so we can monitor um, the, the infrastructure. Maybe we're running some IoT infrastructure that, that could easily be managed by um, by the wireless as well. So I, I think there's definite scope here. But obviously, it all builds on a really solid wireless design. And, and if we're considering um, specific apps with specific functions above and beyond just internet access for for our core customers, then that would also have a bearing on how we would design the Wi-Fi, uh, but also the underlying uh, uh, wired infrastructure and and security environment as well, because they would likely all have their own specific design requirements, security requirements, which would all need to be considered during that planning and design phase. Perfect. So would you say that pretty much covers everything around apps that you wanted to let us know today? Sure, sure. I think that covers apps nicely. Okay. So what have we covered so far again today? We've talked about a wireless physical design, uh, configuration, apps, uh, LAN and WAN, the security, project lifecycle. So maybe maybe, do you want to touch on a little bit about that, about kind of like the project management of this, because I can imagine it's obviously quite a lot of planning involved in designing and building and then testing the uh, wireless solution at the stadium. Yeah, it's actually quite an epic project, <laughs> inception to completion. So it requires uh, dedicated project management and very structured uh, methodology. Uh, so I'll talk you through some of our best practices found. Um, <clears throat> I guess the initial um, engagement would probably primarily be led with uh, some commercial conversations around how we can make this work, what elements need to be involved from, uh, we covered it around the marketing side and, and commercial partnership side. But once we kick into the project for real, it's, it's straight into design. So we would start with an initial walkthrough at the facility, which would really look at the architecture of the building to see what is what is possible, understand the coverage requirements, um, to start to build out whether this would actually work and what sort of things we would need to consider to make it work. Uh, we would start sizing the solution, which would be both the wireless side, but also the wired network, the WAN, and any ancillaries, things like DHCP, DNS, authentication. Then, then we would kick into the survey phases. So very much starting with a predictive survey that would allow us to build a rough order of magnitude of what kit would be required. 
um, to allow us to prepare and plan for uh, a pre-deployment survey, then this is probably the most critical. We would need to test each of the areas that we had previously identified. And this might mean things like um, those roof positions, we would need access up there. So we need to work very closely with the operator of the facility. And uh, we may need um, some sort of roped work access or um, I've seen in some instances we've been able to use large cherry pickers, but what we'd need to do is test each of those positions and enable us to adjust um, things like the uh, exact mounting position, the angles of, of incidence of the antennas, uh, until we're really hitting the right spot that we expect. So very much low-level um, pre-deployment testing of specific exact locations because we uh, we're designing for the real deployment, right? We, we need to know exactly where each of these APs is going to sit, what it looks like in real life, um, really making those data-driven decisions. So, yeah, we would go ahead and what you might find is a lot of these stadiums have a lot of repeating architecture. So you wouldn't literally have to test each position. You might find that a lot of these positions are repeated. Um, so you'd maybe be able to test the the north stand, um, upper tier position one and two, then maybe the northeast corner, uh, but these positions are actually repeated in the north, south and east stands. Um, and then you might have a slightly different architecture in the south stands that requires different pre-deployment pre survey designs. So you test that separately. But yeah, the, the primary focus pre-deployment around those different areas in the bowl Following on from that, we would then look at the non-bowl areas. So we would um, test the concourse, test the bleed into the bowl, um, and then test some of the boxes, um, the restaurants, all of the non-bowl stuff. We would perform pre-deployment testing. Cool. And then when it's fully been installed and, and live, and what would you do to test? Would you be there on a game day? And what sort of testing would, would you be doing on the game day? Sure. We've, we've got different phases of testing post-deployment. Well, in, in fact, we would have testing during the build phase as well. So imagine we've got our cabling partner that is strapping up all of the We need to go ahead and validate that. We need to check that they have been mounted in the right position, that they have been mounted with correct angles of, of antenna incidents. So in order for us to validate that, we would perform empty bowl tuning and empty bowl testing. So this would be very much um, not during match day, right? We would be checking each of those um, APs to make sure it is hitting the exact area that we wanted in, in terms of that cell coverage and you know providing um, that seating area that within the seating deck of, of the coverage that we desired from our initial design and, and there might be positions that need tuning and changing so after our walk a walk through and um, post deployment checks <coughs> we would need to go and give that information back to the cablers to make their adjustments we would also do other things during that empty bowl tuning phase. So we'd be testing channel utilization for both of the 2.4 and the 5 gig bands. Uh, we're really looking for that to be super low. So something like around 0% chance 
channel utilization for five gig, um, maybe 10 or 20% for the 2.4 for empty bowl tuning would be what we'd be looking for. And some other performance related tests as well. So we'll be checking for the association time, the authentication time, uh, internet speed and latency, um, other speed tests, uh, understanding the portion of control traffic. Um, yeah, uh, basically testing everything you can think of within the empty bowl to make sure that we've tuned it appropriately. And, and then at that point, we're pretty much ready for turning it on and testing it during some, um, some live events. But before we do that, uh, there needs to be a, a bit of marketing in place. So the user base needs to know that the network is there. So we might um, perhaps have a, a dummy SSID um, or we, we might have some um, mail shots go out to the client base that we do know or posters so that when we do get to the um, tuning events, we're actually going to get a decent amount of people on. And what we have seen is people do get wind of it and it soon spreads on social media. So um, people do start you know, associating before we've officially turned it on, which is quite helpful for, for that tuning and testing. We would say a minimum of three tuning events would be required. And this would ideally be events where we've got a fairly full capacity stadium. So we're not talking about um, for a bowel cup here. We're talking Champions League style events where we're, we're hitting, you know, 90, 95% capacity of the stadium. This really allows us to soak and stress test the solution um, as best as possible. And the sort of things we would be doing here would be having runners within the stadium. So a full suite of staff would be effectively running around the stadium. Things like association time, authentication time, latency, speed tests from multiple different locations. So remember where we talked about the counting, effectively testing each of those so that we can report back the data and make any tuning or adjustments as required. We would also have a couple of guys in the hot seat, and these would be manning the monitoring platforms, checking some of the key monitoring information, such as channel utilization, the retry rates that we're seeing across the network, link utilization statistics, number of associations per AP, any rogues, um, loads on the ancillary services like DHCP, DNS, the authentication platforms, these sort of things. Then we would also have a seek and destroy hunter. They would be armed with some tools that allow them to identify uh, rogue access points directly. And this would normally be around the media section. So these guys would typically have <clears throat> their own little wireless setup so that they can um, upload their photographs or their, their copy for their newspapers. Uh, we don't like that. We want those guys to come onto our network. So our seeking hunter will go ahead and find those guys and sternly tell them to turn their stuff off, which is nice. Um, but I think we could quite easily use uh, fun things like sensors and perhaps network automation capabilities to do some of this stuff now, which would make it even, even more cool and fun. Um, so yeah, that would be the, the main tuning events. And then over time, our configuration would adapt uh, be as optimal as possible. Uh, following on from that, we would then have day two support. So we would 
have pre-match day checks to make sure all of the systems are operational. There's no um, problems on the land or any of the ancillaries. And then we would uh, create some um, match day reports, which would detail things like wireless plan performance, number of unique associations, number of returnees, this sort of um, high-level information for the event itself. Yeah, so key things to consider and are really managing the third parties within the project. There'll be a, a lot of in, interop between the uh, vendor operator, between your cablers, the, the rope men, um, and obviously the, the customers um, using the network itself. So uh, quite, quite a lot to consider from a project. Yeah, man, it's quite quite nice to see the raise of sensors now, right? Where you don't have to have these guys running around the stadium checking all the stuff that you mentioned. You mentioned it, but it's I just wanted to emphasize that that it's it's real cool to be able to just salt and pepper the sensors across the stadium and just take a look at what's happening if the real user experiences at the expected levels, and just say it from a simple simple dash and be able to react quickly. Right, without having users screaming at you saying that the performance is really not the best. So loving it. Yeah, super cool and cheaper as well. What's not to love? Exactly, exactly. Okay, so that was the project lifecycle. Anything else that we would like to cover within the project lifecycle testing, pre-testing, post-testing and this kind of stuff? Something you would like to add, guys? Yeah, I think we covered the testing elements. Um, pre-post testing, yeah. Okay. In this case, <clears throat> shall we quickly uh, discuss the internet pipe and LAN and WAN uh, challenges about it, uh, the usage that we might see during the live game? What are our concerns around, around the pipe, around the bandwidth, around the wired network? Yeah, the key considerations really are around sizing of the solution. That's across all of those elements. So, for instance, the internet pipe, we need to understand what we think the use is going to be. Um, so we can make some assumptions around the number of potential clients, the number of um, proportion of uptake of clients within a particular stadium, and the, the typical data rate that we see concurrently for those users and this would give us a fair approximation of what size pipe we're going to need but in the main bandwidth is fairly cheap these days um, so it, it it pays to get the biggest pipe at all possible so I, I would definitely try and try and do that um, and yeah I, I don't see any real concerns from from operators investing within uh, within a decent circuit these days um, certainly with uh, the, the economics of uh, of WAN, WAN connections and bandwidth has certainly moved in that direction in recent years. So that's helpful to us. From um, a resilience perspective, of course, we'd probably want to put in a couple circuits. The worst case scenario is hell provider A suffers a fault an hour before kickoff. Um, they're not going to fix that during the game. So you are uh, not in a good place. So yeah. you definitely want to avoid that. Um, so Obviously, we want to bake in enterprise-level resilience, um, not just across the internet pipe, but across all components of, of the network. It's, it's just best practice, and we would always recommend doing that. From a LAN perspective, uh, pretty much a traditional enterprise campus network is um, the order of the day here. 
So we would go ahead and design um, a core access style network. Um, particularly, we would find that we've got a large number of IDFs um, hosting our access switches um, and fiber rings running up between those and, and our MDFs. We have a couple of MDFs which would host all of our core equipment. Based on the distances involved, we might go away with multi-mode fiber, but typically we're seeing single mode. Um, so we need to account for that within our core access uh, design. Um, routed access would typically be preferable, but I've seen layer two style networks that work as well. And really we're looking at 10 gig min on, on those core access links. We, we might even need to start upgrading those guys as we see bandwidth uh, increase to uh, the newer wireless protocols and um, multi-gig that we're, we're seeing on, on the top end access points these days. From, uh, from a control perspective, we typically have wireless LAN controllers to cope with the not fast number of clients and associations that we're seeing. And we would typically uh, connect these guys into dedicated wireless services access layer. And the key consideration there would be large enough CAM tables to cope with the number of Wi-Fi clients and MAC addresses that we'll be seeing. Then internet access, we terminate that on firewalls, but that might also want to sit its own DMZ. And other design elements that we might look to leverage is if we're providing a multi-purpose network, so more than just providing internet connectivity for fans, we might need to do other things as well. So typically providing media, their own dedicated access, or providing uh, coverage for staff or back office systems. We might need to consider network virtualization uh, through VRFs um, or, or other technologies so that we can um, effectively make the infrastructure multi-tenant and treat each separate virtual network slightly differently depending on the needs of the application. And then where we've got on-site ancillary services like the DHCP capabilities for our authentication or captive portal or our monitoring platforms, they'd probably build out a small data center style um, block in the network design just to host um, whatever physical services that we might need on site. Uh, so that would also need to be baked into the solution. Um, <clears throat> then the, the other key element of the LAN would just be around the cabling. So we talked about fiber cabling, but also even more tricky would be the, the copper cabling that runs up to each of our access point locations. These could actually be in some cases in the roof. Um, this could be quite long distances, right? So perhaps even too far for our nearest IDF. So we might need to consider small cabinets with perhaps um, um, small switches, uh, small PoE switches uh, to enable us to extend our reach into these um, tricky to um, cable to or, or long distance locations. So uh, all, all sort of things that we need to consider. Okay. And do you think, you mentioned M-Gig and multi-gigabit those days, is it is it worth doing in the stadium if we have like, you know, 200 users per, per access point projected? Do they normally kill this bandwidth? Do they need more than one gig with AC protocol? Does it make sense to use it now or will it make more sense 
when the new stuff like AX arrives? Yeah, uh, typically I'm not seeing huge usage. Um, not everybody's streaming massive amounts of um, video or downloading massive files. It's it's really just people keeping up with the scores or uploading stuff to Twitter or, or Facebook. So I think today we're, we're not really um, leveraging the full bandwidth um, that we could engineer into the network. Um, but having said that, we have seen some transformational changes to behavior on the network just with things like social media has switched on its heads the typical bandwidth profile that we used to have of primarily downstream with minimal upstream. That's changed. Um, so who's to say with the new protocols uh, coming down that, you know, with AX, it's, it's going to end enable us to hit far more bandwidth and there might be some applications that follow through the door and really make best use of that. So, yeah, I'd, I'd probably say that it may not be um, best utilized today, but the technology is there, right? And um, as soon as it becomes economic, um, it will probably make sense um, to go ahead and install that. And um, I'm sure the, yeah. the developers will find purposes and, and cool use cases to make full use of it. Exactly. It probably makes sense to start future-proofing now because the AX is just behind the corner. The first mainstream clients, they just started appearing on the market and it's just uh, it's just a couple of months really when it starts uh, being more and more popular, I think, right? Like Samsung Galaxy N has Wi-Fi 6 built in and the others will, will follow very quickly, I think. Sure. And we'll probably all have the, uh, the bendy phones wrapped around our arms as well this time next year. <laughs> yeah, possible. Okay, uh, so I think you completely nailed LAN and WAN and bandwidth requirements, which brings us to the last section of this discussion, which would be challenges and lessons learned. Is there anything that you would like to, to talk about uh, what you would have done differently if you had another chance some lessons learned from the stuff that you've done on the on the stadium while designing and implementing it something just you know challenging and entertaining and to worth looking out for thinking about stadium wi-fi yeah the key tips i would give would be number one you need to know your venue and really understand your floor plans it will be quite a complex set so you may have maybe only a couple of tiers, but in the background, that is going to be, you know, probably four or five different floors. Um, it is, you're going to have quite a lot of A1 printouts of, of all of your floor plans, right? So it really pays to know those in, in deep, deep detail. So that's rule number one. Um, you should also build strong relationships with the stadium operations team because they are going to be your friends. They're going to get you everywhere that you need to go. They're going to know all of the electricals, all of the cabling routes, all of the access. So they'll be your best friends. Things like um, use of AP groups and RF profiles will make your life a lot easier for configuring and optimizing the distinct stadium locations so where you've got those repeating areas you know we can just configure those into rf profiles that make life easier for you things that sort of gave us challenges 
were really the, the tuning of AP adjustments in terms of physical uh, physical positions and the down tilt angle of incidence. These sort of things take a bit of effort to, to plan and adjust because it requires access of your cabling team. So once you've had the opportunity to test and validate, um, just work with them quite closely uh, to try and make those changes in the least amount of time and effort for them. Then little things like naming conventions for equipment and access points. Um, just try and be smart about it so that you can tell immediately by looking at an AP name exactly where it is, what type of antenna it's running, the mounting type. Uh, these these sort of things will really help you because you know when you're looking at 500 APs, um, you want simple systems that, that will help you um, understand what's going on quite quickly. Yeah, the key thing is all of the design decisions you make, they should really be based on the data that you've gathered during your planning and, and design and uh, testing and, and surveying work. So you can really understand the impact of those configuration changes in case you need to uh, make adjustments. Amazing. Thank you for that, Ash. Um, is that everything that you kind of wanted to cover for that? Yeah, yeah, sure, guys. I just want to um, say thanks again for your time today, Ash, for not doing this just once, but for the second time, because um, I've really enjoyed listening to all of your tips and configuration stuff around stadium Wi-Fi and learning new words from you around like the vomitories and stuff. It's always interesting, so it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, thank you for having me, guys. It's I've really enjoyed it as well. So, um, yeah, hopefully you can have me back on another time. We would love to. Yeah, we can, we can record it for the third time next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, do you just want to let everyone know again how if they if they want to get in contact with you online, how they can find you? Sure. If, if you want to ask me any related questions, I'm more, more than happy to. Uh, and so you can get me on the Twitters at Ashley Georgeson and I'm also on LinkedIn at Ashley.Georgeson. Cool. And it's the same, same for us guys. If you want to reach out to us on, on Twitter, it's um, at Wi-Fi Ninjas or mine is Matt Starling and Mac is Mac Daring uh, and LinkedIn is the same. Uh, Mac also has his own Geek Wi-Fi blog, which you can find at geekwifi.net. Um so yeah again just thank you guys and thank you for everyone for listening and thank you ash for your time and Mac. have a very good day yeah thank you very much guys and also do not hesitate to leave a comment and also rate us on itunes <laughs> thanks guys bye bye cheers